Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And uh, Jim, the good news, if we can kind of put quotes around that, is the hope that the Russian people can try to put pressure on the Kremlin to end this war. Because the longer this goes on with the sanctions and the other restrictions now aimed against Moscow, uh, life there, as we've talked about already, and just how far to go on sanctions, could get pretty ugly. Uh, Towards the end of today's morning jolt, you quote Russian finance professor Maxim Miranov, who is based in Spain, uh, suggesting what life is going to look like in Russia pretty quickly uh, if things don't change. He writes, uh, very soon the Russians will face a shortage of basic products. I'm not talking about all kinds of iPhones, the import of which has already been banned, but about food, clothes, cars, household appliances, etc. Russia is very strongly integrated into world trade, and already the largest operators refuse to send containers to Russia. He also says they're refusing to take stuff from Russia, so exporting is going to dry up, and so is the cash that comes from that. Later on, he says, in the coming months, we will face the shutdown of entire industries with all the ensuing consequences. Unemployment, respectively, a fall in tax collection, and as a result, problems with the payment of salaries to state employees. Planes, even within Russia, will also soon stop flying. After all, almost all of them are imported. He also talks about how Russia has a pretty decent agricultural uh, sector, but most of their seeds imported. So the very basics are going to dry up soon, uh, and that's going to put a lot of pressure on Putin, he hopes and thinks. Yeah. Now, look, so far, Putin has not seemed particularly concerned about the state of the Russian economy so far. And it's, you know, uh, understandable people are wary about whether he's going to change his mind on this sort of thing or whether he's clear thinking on any of this at this point. That having been said, this is now a race between the West sanctions pounding the Russian economy and the Russian military pounding the Ukrainians. Now, we knew, you know, you and I had talked about in the past, kind of wish that some of these uh, sanctions could have kicked in a little bit earlier. It is going to take some time for them to take effect. But we already saw the runs on the banks and people rushing out to ATMs to get cash out of the machines, things like that. The stock market remains closed. Really, God only knows if they're going to open. I think one of my favorite examples of this came from kind of the Russian equivalent of CNBC. And there's this guy who is brought on as an analyst and he opens up, it looks like your champagne or, or some sort of liquor. And he says, dear stock market, you're interesting. Rest in peace, dear comrade. <laughs> um, when you're talking about your stock market in past tense, that's a sign your economy is really heading towards uh, the dumpster. So like, all in all, this is going to pack a really severe punch and it's only going to get worse for the Russians week by week, month by month. The bad news is that if you are a Ukrainian who is hiding in a subway station or in a basement and you're terrified of shelling, bringing the building down uh, on top of you, uh, you know, I don't know if any of this is working fast enough, which is kind of foreshadowing some of the, the ideas being tossed around in our second martini. So, I mean, the good news is we have demonstrated that the economic, when the whole West gets together, us and, and all of our NATO allies, the EU, a whole lot of other countries say, all right, that's it. Russia, we're cutting you off. We're not taking any more of your exports, except for oil and gas, at least so far, although there's been a little bit more pressure on that direction. Um, you know, all of your other exports, we're turning them down. We're seizing your assets of your oligarchs. 
We're making it uh, almost impossible for most of your biggest banks to move money inside and outside of the country. Makes it very hard to get paid for your exports. Makes it very hard for you to purchase the imports. And that's going to bring the you know Russian economy screeching to a halt. Now, the Russians throughout their history have demonstrated an enormous capacity to withstand intense suffering. Um, it's almost built into the Russian character, you might say. But at some point, you kind of wonder if today's Russians who've had uh, several decades of prosperity, not not broadly shared prosperity, mind you, but some, you know, not just the oligarchs, that some people are increasing their standard of living. Uh, do they eventually have a backlash of this? And do they start asking themselves, why are we doing this? What are we getting out of this? What is what is the upside of this enormous cost that we are paying? And hopefully at some point, this gets to be so much that not even Vladimir Putin can ignore it anymore. Jim, let's say, and we certainly don't want this to happen, but let's say Russia is successful militarily in Ukraine, at least in terms of uh, the major cities and so forth. Do they think that the sanctions are going to ease at that point? I would assume they wouldn't. So I don't, no, I, no I, I guess I wonder if they think that at some point uh, Europe will say, ah, oh, you know, all that Russian, you know, oil and gas is just sitting there. And, um, you know, look, considering how quickly Afghanistan disappeared from the headlines here in the United States, you know, Putin may say that, look, the West can get really, really angry, but that angry, very that anger very rarely lasts. And that six months from now, a year from now, they'll get used to it the same way they got used to my occupation of Ukraine. And that, that's, you know, ironic, ironic choice of words, considering how we're debating Putin's mental state. But you could say that's not a crazy calculation. I also don't think it's a sure thing. And I think that uh, the sights we are seeing out of Ukraine are making it harder and harder for anything to resemble a, you know, renormalization of U.S.-Russian relations. The other thing I'm kind of wondering is, is that what, you know, considering the bombardment we are seeing in uh, in Kiev and, the, and Ukraine and other cities and the, you know, indiscriminate firing of, of artillery shells and other weapons into cities and stuff like that, you know, what are you going to have? How many how many factories are undamaged? How many uh, of the infrastructure is undamaged? Hospitals, schools. Russia may well occupy either all of or a big chunk of Ukraine. But one, God knows how long they're going to be able to control it. They're going to have an insurgency. It's going to make Iraq look like nothing. And then the second thing is, what have you got? Maybe the farms are intact. Maybe that's about it. I mean, this this is basically, um, you're going to get that that territory on the map but you're not going to get anything useful. And in the process, you're going to have impoverished your own country. Well, unfortunately, I think you're right about the short memory, because remember, as soon as uh, some of the sanctions eased on Iran not that long ago, I remember Germany and I think France and some other countries were more than happy to go in there and try to make a lot of money off of the Iranians, who are still obviously uh, one of the more evil regimes on the planet. So, uh, yeah, to think that it might stay this way long term, sanctions wise, might be a bit of wishful thinking on my part. Uh, I'm sure you saw that Joe Manchin and Lisa Murkowski now are trying to lead the way legislatively to cut off importation of Russian oil. Uh, Murkowski did say, though, that it's going to be painful uh, economically, mainly with how much we're going to have to pay at the pump. So uh, hopefully we can get some domestic production jacked back up like we did uh, just a little over a year ago and not. Yeah, Greg, if only this country was sitting on oil. <laughs> yeah, that would be really if, nice. if only there was oil underneath our feet somewhere. You know? Yes. All over the place. 
All right. Well, while we try to make some progress on that front, let's take a look at some very good deals. And if you're going to be paying through the nose for gas and a lot of other things, good deals are going to be very, very important. And MyPillow is here to help because who doesn't love a great deal? And right now, when you click on the My Listeners page at MyPillow.com, enter the promo code MARTINI. There are more than 20 deals for you to choose from, including MyPillows as low as $19.98, MySlippers at 50% off, the My Towel sets at $39.99, 60% off any Giza Dream Sheet set with prices as low as $39.99. And when you use our promo code MARTINI, they'll throw in Mike Lindell's new book for free. Now, the towel sets include two bath towels, two hand towels, and a two-pack washcloth. They are highly absorbent without the lotion-y feel. The towels are available in multiple styles and sizes, and they are machine washable, and they come with a 10-year limited warranty. You will find all of these offers and more at MyPillow.com. Click on the radio listener's square and use the promo code MARTINI at checkout to get those great deals, or use the code when you call 800-874-0104. Right now, every order using the promo code MARTINI uh, will also receive Mike's new book, What Are the Odds? From Crack Addict to CEO. And you'll get that for free. MyPillow.com promo code MARTINI or call 800-874-0104. Do not forget the code MARTINI to get your free book. Well, as Jim alluded to in the first MARTINI, um, the race between the crippling economic sanctions and other penalties against Russia, against the uh, military progress of the Russians against Kiev and, and other major cities, uh, is is very, very stressful, which is leading people to try to come up with ideas that will help Ukraine militarily. The problem is they go over the line when it comes to potentially triggering a much, much larger and bloodier war. We talked uh, earlier this week about the proposal for no-fly zones and NATO and maybe even U.S. pilots patrolling that. But, of course, if you're going to put up the no-fly zone, you got to be willing to shoot down a Russian plane and guess what happens after that. Things are going to escalate. Now there are some other ideas, especially as um, folks look at this massive Russian convoy inching its way towards Kiev. And the one of the ideas out there, Newsweek was talking about how some folks uh, in the military community think you can maybe drone this convoy and get away with it. And Sean Hannity uh, on his radio show also suggesting, hey, let's just bomb it and not admit it, and Putin will never know. You know, if we can see on satellite imagery... Where the convoy is, I don't know. Maybe some smart country, maybe NATO might take some of their fighter jets, uh, or maybe they can use some drone strikes and take out the whole damn convoy. And then nobody takes credit for it. So then Putin won't know who to hit back. Well, he's threatening nuclear weapons. Hannity, you talk about nuclear war. I'm not talking about nuclear war, nor would I support one American boot on the ground here. But at what point is this going to end? Jim, if we get directly involved, there are going to be direct consequences. Yeah, I, I understand the anger and the desire to do something, the desire to do more than the economic sanctions that we are enacting so far. But this is likely to spiral out of control. Uh, by the way, he says, uh, I only want to use airstrikes. I don't want to use boots on the ground. Well, the moment a pilot gets shot down, you have boots on the ground. Uh, you know, thinking back to Bosnia, uh, and there was, I believe it was a, uh, one of the pilots was shot down. And it was... 11 days, you have to do a rescue operation. You know, you, these situations do tend to 
have unforeseen circumstances and unforeseen challenges that come along. But even on this, like, look, the Russians have satellites too. I, I understand the desire to basically kind of use one of Putin's favorite maneuvers. You may have heard about the little green men. This is when basically soldiers that everybody knew were Russian units, they just took off their insignias, went across the border into Crimea. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're hitting targets, setting up checkpoints, doing scouting, you know, basically doing all kinds of... Uh, uh, military maneuvers over there, but because they didn't have Russian insignia, the official line of the Russian government was, we don't know who those guys are. They could be anybody, even though everybody knew there. I can understand the desire to want to hit that convoy of 40 miles of Russian tanks and attack weapons and tr support trucks and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, all over social media, you're seeing like, God, if I just had, you know, just a couple of A-10s and we could turn that into a 40 mile line of, you know, flaming shrapnel and all that stuff. By the way, if the U.S., if there was risk of U.S. airstrikes, they probably wouldn't put together, you know, 40 miles of vehicles all in one place, um, creating a great big easy target there. The, you know, this is, it, it, in the end, Russia would know who that was. Russia would, you know, not be fooled. They would not have any confusion. And they would probably treat it as if it, as if it was exactly what it is, as a, Rush, a, a NATO attack on Russian forces. And then World War III is upon us in one form or another. Maybe it wouldn't be full-scale full nuclear exchange, and thank goodness if that came to this, but you know, you'd see cyber attacks probably. You'd see some sort of Russian retaliation against NATO. Um, and I think that's kind of my attitude towards the arguments from, I think it was Adam Kinzinger, a few others who said, we need to enforce a no-fly zone. Well, a no-fly zone means that you either have Russia, you know, NATO pilots in the air or NATO air defenses shooting down Russian planes. And once you do that, you're in that same scenario. Look, I really, really want to help the Ukrainians. I really want to put the squeeze on Russia, but I also don't want to start World War III. And I think that's uh, a cautionary point that, that is getting lost in, in some observers. I wrote about this in the corner yesterday. We have, you think back to, Greg, pretty much your and my lives, certainly since the end of the Cold War, you know, Panama, uh, the Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Bosnia, uh haiti iraq the first time iraq the second time uh afghanistan syria you know generally the u.s has had air superiority and the u.s has had the ability to hit any target it wants whenever it wants as soon as those those targets are are you know uh recognized and spotted without the fear of a russia or a china a nuclear armed foe getting into the fight by the way, there are a couple exceptions there. There was a big fight with Russian mercenaries in Syria back in, uh, I want to say 2016 or so, uh, 2017, something like that. And um, there was also the uh, bit of tension between the US and Russia over Serbia back in 1999. So occasionally we've kind of gotten close to this. We've never seen anything quite like this. And it's a situation where we don't have the freedom of operations that we're used to having. And I think some observers are kind of uh, kind of befuddled by that, that we are not in a situation, this is a really important war. The consequences for Europe and for the rest of the world are going to be intense. And yet, at least as of now, until Russia takes a strike on a NATO, a NATO ally or one of our forces, we cannot intervene without setting off a much larger confrontation. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. As badly as we want the Russians to be deterred and for the Ukrainians to hold, uh, there has to be a line we cannot cross. And that would be one that would be foolish to cross. All right, Jim, let's move on to our crazy martini now. And obviously uh, trying to punish Russia economically, 
militarily, uh, lots of different ways that a lot of different countries are acting. Energy industries, some, uh, BP and Shell, for example, cutting off some energy ties uh, with uh, Russia. Uh, you've got a lot of countries banning Russian flights, uh, of course, the sanctions on the banks, and on and on and on. And then there are really stupid ways to try and punish Russia, which don't punish Russia at all. And we're seeing several of those, and they probably need to be mentioned. So we're going to do that here, starting pretty close to home here, right downtown Washington, D.C. This is from DCEater.com. Vandals targeted Russia House, Calorama. That's a neighborhood in D.C. Calorama's decades-old destination for caviar, vodka, and Eastern European standards like borscht and pierogies on both February 25th and 26th, breaking windows, damaging a door, and scrawling what appeared to be anti-Russian rhetoric on the exterior walls of the historic building, according to WUSA 9. Owner Aaron McGovern believes the property damage may be related to anti-Russian sentiment. I think he's probably right about that. He says assailants smashed five large windows and knocked over a concrete wall, and he estimates repair costs up to $20,000 or more. Prior to being vandalized over the weekend, he says he was about three weeks away from reopening the Russia house after a two-year hiatus because of the pandemic. Now he has no idea. He says the temperatures are way too hot. So that's obviously not good at all. Uh, There was a Russia house, not related to that one, another restaurant, though, uh, in Austin, Texas, that it's now just house. It's not Russia house anymore. Change their name. Uh, Then in the last few days, we've seen people pouring vodka down the drain, people that that contract's already been taken care of. If it's in this country, it's already been paid for. So you don't need to dump it down the sewer. You can you can refuse future vodka if you want to. Uh, yesterday, we found out that Russian teenagers aren't going to be allowed to play hockey in Canada. And Jim, my favorite one of the day, the International Cat Federation is banning Russian cats. When the ICF, the International Cat Federation, puts down its clawed paws, you know things are getting serious. And in this case, insane. You know, a couple of things to note here, by the way, for the people who are pouring out their Stolichnia vodka or, or, you know, people who are saying, oh, I'm never going to drink it again. Uh, Stolichnia, I know it's Russian theme, but it is manufactured and bottled in Riga, Latvia. Latvia is a NATO ally, listeners. (laughs) Drink all the Stolichnia you like. Go right ahead. You're not punishing. You're not helping Russia by doing it. In fact, you're helping one of our allies. Um, you know, double check the labels. Don't do those kinds of stupid things. And, and as Greg points out, anything you've bought, you've already bought. If you want to do it as a symbolic gesture, it's kind of like when people, you know, burn the jersey of their favorite player when they're traded or when they, you know, <laughs> sign with another team. It's a free country. You can do what you want, but in the end, it's not really changing anything. Um, and if you're going to boycott, you know, like I don't really see there's any point in um, trying to punish. There was like a, a youth hockey league that was going to keep out r- Russian players. Uh, there was somebody who said the NHL should push, should send back all the Russian players. Um, that is not a, you know, look, the, the Russian hockey players don't have anything to do with this. Uh, no Russian immigrant in the United States has anything to do with Vladimir Putin's decision making. Let's not forget to kid ourselves. Um, I, you know, as much as, but I, I guess I should point out, and this is kind of ties into the point about Russia House in D.C., um, it is a big hangout for Russians who live and work, or Russian Americans who live and work in uh, the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, Alex Ovechkin of the Washington Capitals and the other Russian players apparently hang out there every now and then. I went there once years and years ago. You know, like, again, it's owned by an American. The guy who runs it is named McGovern, not McGovernsky, not (laughs) McGovernimov or anything like that. This is, you know, this is not connected to the Russian government. If you're going to boycott, if you're going to protest, like, focus on the actual target. Don't just take this out on anybody who 
has a Russian last name or a Russian accent or something like that. If you do that, you're turning to the same kind of, you know, uh, unthinking thug that, that Putin is. So it's, it's deeply frustrating. I do note that uh, Alex, Alex Ovechkin is apparently on, you know, good terms with Vladimir Putin. Uh, I don't envy the situation Alex Ovechkin is in because, um, you know, for a long time he's been this uh, you know Russian sports hero beloved by uh, Russians for succeeding in American hockey, and uh, he has you know participated in propaganda campaigns for Putin in the past. I don't like that, but I, you can tell that he he has spoken out a little bit, and he says he wants to have no more war. Russian athletes here in the U.S. are in a really tough spot. I, if you're a Russian, I don't know how openly you can speak against Putin without there being some very serious consequences for your families, relatives back in Russia, stuff like that. So I guess say, let's focus our anger where it belongs. Let's not let anybody who has uh, little or no connection to the Russian government end up paying the price for this. There's already enough suffering in this world. Yeah, uh, I get anger. Obviously, there's uh, plenty of reason for anger. But like Jim said, you have to channel that in a productive way. Uh, Some of these things are just punitive and uh, not only don't help now, they're not going to help down the road because you're going to embitter people against you if they're in Canada right now. They're not much of a threat, obviously, to uh, Ukraine or anywhere else on the planet. But they are going to remember who told them they couldn't play hockey and who seemed to crack down on them arbitrarily. Uh, anyway, Jim, hopefully on to Brighter Fair tomorrow. Talk to you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks very much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Also, uh, please tell your friends about us. Uh, we are very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Uh, we also want to remind you to get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast, and they'll play it. And uh, follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday, and please join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. Longtime CIA operative Rick Prado joins me to discuss his decades fighting communism. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Prado takes us inside his daring missions and how political considerations often take priority over national security. We'll also discuss how best to tackle the China-Russia threats And I'll also explain what's really going on as Vladimir Putin puts his nuclear forces on alert. Don't miss it. Follow The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.